Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by Try Vegan, a vegan meal home delivery service that is nutritious and delicious and makes your life easier. Based out of New Jersey, they deliver throughout the Northeast. Check out more details on their website, tryveganmealprep.com. And you can get 25% off your first order with the promo code LITYOGA. So go vegan. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Friday with friends and I have a dear friend with me, Meredith Clemens. Meredith is a certified lit yoga teacher and she is also getting her master's in public health at George Washington University. Welcome, Meredith. Thanks so much for having me. I feel incredibly honored and incredibly humbled to get to have this conversation. So I'm really excited. Well, I'm excited because it's always fun for me to have somebody that I already know, I already adore. And just to give you a background for people that are listening, Meredith went through my training a year and a half ago. And when she was going through the training, I was just struck with her presence, her confidence, her passion, her eloquence. So I'm excited to have you on and have everybody experience that. Let us talk about what you're studying and what you're passionate about. So can you talk about your studies? Sure. Yeah. So I'm receiving or I'm in the process of getting my master's in public health, which is a two-year degree. I'm in my second year. And my track is global environmental health. So we are looking at how the environment influences human health and particularly on a global scale. So we're often talking about low and middle income countries and the challenges that they face, which are often quite different than the developing world. So I have long just kind of in my spirit felt a really big connection with nature. And I think that's where this interest in finding out more about how humans intersect with the environment came from and what ultimately drove me to the program. I also, in addition to being in the MPH program, am a research assistant at GW. 
and I'm working on a climate change communications project. So climate change is near and dear to my heart and love to talk about, again, the health aspects of what we're looking to expect in the future, but also opportunities that we have in addressing both climate change and some of the health issues that many of us struggle with. So first of all, can you lay out what are some of the expectations that climate change will have on health that you are learning about right now? Yeah, definitely. This is one of my favorite areas to talk about because in some ways it's central to the climate change discussion, but it's often overlooked. And instead, we often talk more about, you know, how will this change hydrology or how will this change soil health or the forests, etc. But for many people, you know, health is the closest thing to home you could think of. So to shed some light on that is really exciting and like such a privilege. The number one thing that comes to mind first is what we would call heat health. So as we expect the temperature to rise worldwide, with that comes health challenges associated with heat. So that would be, especially in older populations, we would be looking at increased frequency of strokes, heart attacks. We already have registered higher levels of strokes and heart attacks during heat waves, especially in urban environments. So there's something called the urban heat island, which would be you know, often if you're thinking about green space and trees, they have a cooling effect on the environment, which anybody who's lived in New York City, if you go upstate at any point in the summer, you're probably struck by the 10 degree difference, maybe in temperature. And that's a real scientific effect. There's more heat absorption in those cities. And because of that, we have to be monitoring heat health in those areas. Things like cooling centers, where people can aggregate in one space that's cooled are really important in those spaces. So heat health is a huge thing. It's not just a problem in urban places, but it's also globally something that we'll need to monitor. We also have the impacts of extreme weather events. So that can be everything from mental health effects, which are very real. Those are traumatic experiences, of course, to contamination of the water that like if it's a flooding event in particular, the water can become contaminated by essentially any chemical that it picks up during the flooding process. And then that water flowing throughout areas where people are living, there are real disease implications there. Another one that's not touched on much, but I know that scientists are not excited about, but very interested in is the potential for more pollen allergies to happen. So there's this idea that if the trees are blooming longer and there's some idea that maybe there will be some more aggressive release of pollen, we'll actually see more respiratory inflammation. That's one of my favorite recent ones to think about. And then there's also the area of air pollution and respiratory health is huge. And the connection is the drivers of climate change are the drivers of respiratory health issues driven by air pollution. So the same greenhouse gases that we see driving climate change are often responsible for major pollution events and those will impact respiratory health. And then I think the final one I'll touch on, I know this can be overwhelming and sound so depressing, but the final one I would touch on is um, potential for disease vector habitats to expand. So something like malaria, 
which is spread by mosquitoes. We might see those mosquito species habitats expand as parts of the earth get warmer. And as they expand, they will potentially carry that disease with them. So infectious disease or kind of zoonotic vector-borne disease is also a big one that climate scientists are talking about. So (laughs) I think it can sound so extensive and overwhelming when we start listing out all the different aspects of health that can be impacted, but it's not all, it's not all doom. So I would say if you're listening and you're feeling despairing, don't freak out yet. We'll get to the maybe more positive side of this. Yeah. I mean, I think that when there is ever a problem and you are going to be solution oriented, which I know that's what you're even more excited about, that you have to address the realities of the problem, the causes and to bury our head in the sand is is not going to work. And to just kind of hope it's going to be slow enough that it's not going to affect our lifetime is also not a responsible action. So I, I feel like this is actually really important to just address as these are objective, measurable changes. And then there are things that we can do about them. But I, I'm fascinated by the entire scope of the health. Like I wasn't even thinking about the mental, psychological health, of course. Of course, we would be impacted when there is some kind of disaster in our area and our house is burned down or flooded, or um, it affects our income and it affects our ability to have financial stability for our family. So there are so many layers to it. Now, I'm curious about the greenhouse gases for a moment. So in terms of greenhouse gases, what are currently objectively the biggest contributors to greenhouse gases? Yeah. So the greenhouse gas effect is a natural effect. It's actually what allows life to live on earth. It makes this whole shindig happen. What we talk about when we talk about climate change is that this process, the greenhouse gas effect has gone further if anthropogenic sources weren't existing. So Natural greenhouse gases include water vapor, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. But when we start to talk about human-driven climate change and what those gases are, the one, the big one that you'll hear is carbon dioxide. And there are many. Carbon dioxide often gets the focus. And I just want to preface this by saying I'm not a climate scientist. I am not an earth scientist. So I don't I don't want to overstate my authority here. But carbon dioxide is our our primary concern. And there is also a big concern with methane. But methane is interesting because it's part of this concern that we are triggering a positive feedback loop in our climate, which would be we have changed and driven the temperature so far that certain processes have been triggered that we can't undo. And methane comes into this when we start looking at especially ice melt, because there are actually little pockets of methane trapped in sea ice, but also in permafrost in the tundra. And as those ice reserves start to melt, the methane is actually released. And if you're interested in seeing what this looks like, you can see some extreme examples on YouTube. People will melt an air pocket in the ice and then light it on fire and it explodes and it's the methane gas. So I think the two big ones that you'll hear about are carbon dioxide and methane. And what are the big contributors to methane? Do you mean carbon dioxide? Sorry. Either one 
um, like what is creating methane? What's creating those pockets of methane? What's creating the excess CO2? Excess CO2 is certainly emissions from fossil fuels. So we drill for oil and gas, and then we burn that in cars or as you know, gas uh, source for our homes. Combustion processes, which would be the burning of those gases to try to harness the energy, are imperfect. And it's in that imperfect process of combustion that these gases get released. <laughs> Another fun source of methane is coming from animal farming. So animal waste is ridden with methane. All of their flatulence, if you will, is methane gas released. So currently that's a massive source of methane, something we talk about a lot. Yeah, the CO2 emissions, largely we talk about cars, but you know we're using fossil fuels now in so many realms of our lives. Every piece of plastic Tupperware you own is derived from petrochemicals, spandex, like for all of our yoga pants, our leggings, it's derived from petrochemicals. So this has really become something that's embedded into so many aspects of our lifestyle. And I think that's where we start to feel overwhelmed when we start to ask, how can we address this? How can we do better? Because the more you dig, the more you find, and it can become it can become paralyzing, I think, in some cases. Yeah. So to that end, because again, we're talking about the way people eat, the way people drive and, and transport themselves around, what they're wearing. Like you said, it can be so overloading to the brain that we just kind of shut it down. And again, I think that's some of it is just natural. I, I think we really, most of us want to be responsible. So what are some steps we can take that would help with that? Then let's talk more about your more positive approach in terms of the implications for our health and how we can improve our health going forward. Sure. So I actually want to take a second to draw a parallel between the yoga practice and this practice of trying to improve our contributions to our environment, because I think the yamas and niyamas are so here. And everything starts in this realm, I think, with self-study and with trying to take stock of what you care about at your core. And I think once we identify those values or those primary motivators, that's what we can leverage when we're trying to take action on the environment. So I think this process starts with having the space and time to self-reflect and understand what we care most about. And that's how we can start to taper or reframe this massive world of there are so many different ways that you could be causing issues. How do you address them all? Narrow in on your values, on your core, and that's going to be your guiding force, I think, in navigating the, if you will, pro-environment space. So I like to think about people's strengths. Like, What are you really good at and how can you contribute that to this movement? And that's not a prescriptive statement, right? I'm not here saying like, well, you have to buy an electric car. That would be great. But maybe you are a really excellent planner. And so you're able to plan every new appliance purchase you make for the next 10 years. You can do the research, find the most efficient appliance. That's a positive contribution to 
our emissions challenge. So I would start with this. We all need to do some taking stock of what we can offer and what matters most to us. And that's going to be our guiding light, if you will. Before I dive into the, some, some of the specifics that specific actions individuals can take, I also want to talk about in the climate change space, there's a bit of a push and pull between this idea that individual action is impactful enough to make a difference and the idea that we really should only be focusing on policy and much more of a systematic macro level approach to cutting emissions. My answer to that is a yes and. I think that we can have both. So an important individual contribution can be calling your representative and explaining how important this is to you. Can even be something like being really involved in your local community, noticing perhaps that there are zoning rules that are implicating the environment in some way or finding the opportunity for grant money to install solar panels, wind farms, etc. So I think we can do both. We can advocate for stronger policy because that's a really important part of this conversation. But I also firmly believe that individual action, when taken in the aggregate, when we have millions of people taking small steps, it adds up to be a huge step. So if you are somebody who feels like, you know, me turning off my lights really doesn't mean anything, it's not enough to change the path that we're on, double down into your faith and just believe that if you are part of the movement making those small steps, you are contributing and it does matter. I love that. I love that. That's very powerful and empowering. And I think that this time where we've had this pandemic and we've been in some form of lockdown, whether we've been, you know, at least our daily lives have become much smaller or closed in. And I think if anything, it has really shown us how little we actually do need to you know, I'm not, I'm not speaking for everyone because I know there are people who certainly are struggling with it. But I'm saying in, I think there's many who are witnessing how we don't need as much as we think we need. We don't need to drive around to the extent we need to. And that has, I think, been very enlightening for a lot of people. And maybe taking those lessons of just like we were given a pause, whether we wanted it or not. And in those pauses, we can do the self-study, that savariyaya, that reflection of like, what can I do and what do I actually really need to survive and thrive and, and be happy and productive? And that can be like, I don't need 10 pairs of yoga tights or I don't need, you know, um, to buy plastic things, you know, for, to drink out of, uh, you know, it's just like little small choices that do add up. And I think we do have to believe that we there is an effect, a compound effect for all of us doing small things. Absolutely. And I think this idea of non-excess is especially in the United States or more the Western world, I guess is how I would put it, consumption and the desire to improve our environment can feel like they are pulling you in two directions. And I think acknowledging that and taking a moment to, as you said, maybe a forced pause, but to really take stock of what you need to 
support your family and to support your livelihood. It's so important. And I think there's also a big ahimsa component here of nonviolence because as the United States, we are contributing more to global warming or excuse me, climate change. And those that are most impacted and affected by it are in the global South, largely low and middle income countries. So (laughs) not to hit this point too many times, but it's a nonviolence act to start to take stock of these often challenging things. And maybe it doesn't feel good to acknowledge those things, but we have to start there to start to repair and restore as we, as we move forward. And I'm just thinking about over the course of the last eight months or however long it's been since we went into this sort of lockdown state. I used to go to the park by my house and see maybe two people at any point. It could be on a weekend. It could be during the day, not high traffic at all. When I go to the park now, I see dozens and dozens of people walking with their families, taking it all in, out in nature. And I think the closer we get to those moments where we can appreciate the natural world, natural to some extent, that we inhabit the more we start to understand that the environment's health is human health. The you know human population's health is the environment's health. They're one in the same. We exist in a web. And I think just as you said, having this forced pause to take stock and reflect on that, we can leverage this in a huge way. And I think it can become a really big opportunity to push more pro-environment behaviors forward, certainly. In addition to respiratory stuff, I'm just going to go off a little bit here. I'm just thinking of like practical ways of questions I'm sure people would have. What is the recent research on water? Obviously, the water quality will differ depending on in the Western world versus non. It will depend on even urban versus rural. But in general, what are the things that are um, maybe a little disturbing and what are some like positive things that you're finding out as well. Yeah, I'm glad you bring this up. I wanted to touch on this earlier because the water and food security aspect of climate change is huge and something that we're already seeing affect populations throughout the world. So on the sad side of things, drought is going to become a major problem in certain regions of the world. And on the flip side, extreme flooding and extreme rain events will also become a problem in different regions of the world. And I think this is a great microcosm example of how complicated a lot of understanding and conceptualizing climate change is. It's There's no one statement that can cover everything. So we see both lower rainfall events and very high extreme level rainfall events. And I might just add here, that is why climate change is a more useful and kind of truthful term than global warming because when all of a sudden it's like super cold in you know certain parts people are like oh there's no global warming well it's the whole idea is that climate change is messing up the weather systems so i'm glad you spoke about that it is happening people it's just not deniable so anyway go ahead yeah no it's it's so we have flooding and trout <laughs> Disruption of balance at heart, disruption of balance. With drought and extreme flooding, they both will impact our ability to grow food and the food system. We already see mass 
exodus events from regions that are experiencing extreme drought. Often in the news, the headline is focusing on the fact that it's a refugee crisis and it's rarely, or I think this is changing currently, but it's often been because of climate or climate has been one of the drivers of those exodus events, but that's not the first connection that we make. And it's going to become more important that we do make that connection moving forward. So ability to generate enough food for our global population is going to become a really big challenge for both sides of the coin. So extreme flooding events can destroy crops and obviously drought can inhibit the ability to use the soil. I think looking at this from a positive perspective, there's this great documentary called Thank You for the Rain about a rural farmer in Kenya whose village is experiencing these extreme droughts and then random extreme rain events that will flood out crops. So they're getting the worst of it all in one location. And he becomes essentially a climate activist and really is advocating for planting trees in the region because trees can start to bring those extremes into a more moderate place because they start to capture water, hold it in their roots. They also capture carbon, which is important. So I think of him whenever I think about water security and droughts and flooding and just his assertion that if we can plant more trees or use trees more in our agricultural processes, we can start to regulate some of this up and down and left and right all over the place that we're finding in regions throughout the world. So in the water space, I always like to talk about the power of plant life and trees in taking things to a more moderate place. And there are some really exciting agricultural processes, often called regenerative agriculture or agroecology, that start to integrate this idea that we can have our row crops, but we can also intersperse it with large trees, fruit trees, more perennial, substantial plants that will be consistent for decades. So that's my positive spin on... um, Trees for the answer. Plant more trees. I love that. Yeah. Exactly. There's so... Yeah. And we should, along those lines, really start to prohibit the chopping down of so many of the ones from the rainforest to just be... It should be illegal, you know? Yeah. And to just tag on to that, if anyone's interested in donating a great organization doing work in the rainforest space is the Coalition for Rainforest Nations. So they essentially, from my understanding, aggregate these donations and then give them directly to local organizations who can figure out how best to leverage the money in their communities rather than being an outside force coming in. But they're doing amazing work with preservation of the rainforest. And as you say, that's one of the biggest pieces when it comes to trees. Well, kind of to round this out and speaking, in addition to donating, can you come up with three to five tips that people can do in their daily lives that can really help them to be active participants for the health of our environment and for ourselves? Because as you said, they are, we are connected. We are interwoven. So I'd love to hear your tips. Yeah. Some of these won't feel revolutionary, but There's something to be said for a classic concept, right? It's classic for a reason. One plant-based diet, especially beef, is just a massive contributor to carbon emissions. But when you start really diving deep, often dairy is not far behind. So eating plant-based as often as possible. For anyone who is not a vegan listening, 
This doesn't mean in one day you go from zero to 60. This can start as something you do twice a week, three times a week. Experiment with what feels doable for you. Eating plant-based 40% of the time, if we're just looking from an environmental standpoint, is we want more 40 percenters than we do all or nothings. So your incremental behavior change matters. It really does contribute. I love that. Number two would be minimize your car use as much as possible. And I know, especially in the US, this is a tricky one. If you live in a city, a lot of cities are getting a lot more bike friendly or hopefully yours is friendly to walkers and has a good public transit system. All of those are excellent options. If you live somewhere where you really do need a car to get around, there's a concept called trip chaining, which is that you essentially make a list or aggregate all of the small errands that you need to do and just do it all in one go with your car so that you're not doing out and backs 10 times a week. Trying to aim for walking or bicycling as much as possible. Next level would be public transit as much as possible. Third level would be a concept like trip chaining, just trying to be conscious about how often you use that car. And then the dream for us all, right, would be to buy an electric or a hybrid vehicle. And I know that you know there are financial barriers to that, certainly. So if that's not accessible to you right now, there are other ways. And this transportation piece is one of the biggest drivers of a healthier respiratory system. So we would call that a co-benefit in the climate space that you are also, you're helping not contribute as much to the greenhouse gas issue, but you're also going to improve. If a lot of people contribute to this, we will start to improve our pollution profiles. And that's very good for our lungs. Third one, and this is, I think, an under, under publicized one, but our homes are huge contributors to potential greenhouse gas emissions. And for all you apartment dwellers, I also am in an apartment, but we can take steps like simply unplugging appliances that aren't in use. Like if you connect your TV to a power strip that has a switch on it, you can easily just turn the power strip off. And it I think they call it ghost electricity actually can be a huge drain on your... A, your electrical bill is probably higher, but it contributes a lot to our household emissions. And then on the second side of that is efficient appliance use. So Energy Star is the government label for energy efficient appliances. So as much as possible, and I know we don't always have the purchasing power, but trying to gear towards an Energy Star appliance or an energy efficient appliance. And then my personal favorite, I really love this realm. And I actually, Laura, I saw your daughter made you a sports bra out of a an exercise top a few months ago. I saw you mention something about that. So I think looking at our clothing is really exciting. And if you're somebody who cares about style and fashion, there's a lot of opportunity here to be creative and and find new ways to either use fabrics or find new thrift shops to use and find secondhand clothing, reuse clothing. So essentially, if we can minimize the number of new products that we purchase, we're going to be moving in the right direction. Reduce, reuse, recycle really stands strong here. So looking at your clothing, seeing if you can use any of the fabric to maybe create a sports bra or a new top out of a dress or a skirt out of a dress, if you're into that sort of crafty thing. And then 
looking for secondhand options as well. They're expanding every day. I I know. I think that thrifting has become, you know, it's all what's trendy. So if we can make this a really great trendy thing to go to thrift stores, like that's what my kids love to do. And I think they're doing it from like an environmental standpoint, but I also think it's actually really cool. So it's a win-win. The other thing I'll say is, I'm sure you know this, but a lot of people don't know that there are three R's, but there's actually a fourth, which is refuse. And refuse is refusing to contribute by, you know, buying brand new things or whatever it is. Reusing and recycling is amazing, but refusing is actually is it very powerful because it's like saying, actually, I'm not going to. And that could be refusing to participate in animal agriculture or refusing to buy brand new something when you don't really need it. So I think it empowers us because we can make these decisions that ultimately are beneficial to us, but the environment and to everybody, because we're all in this together. We are a global community. And the more we operate that way, the happier we're going to all be, you know, even if some of the predictions are not so bright, the best thing we can do is have a bright attitude about our own contributions. Absolutely. And I think We need to reframe this space as a joyful one. We can create such an interesting and progressive and exciting future. Everybody should watch the French documentary tomorrow. They highlight things that are happening throughout the world that are just really cool and exciting. And our future can be bright, even if we head in this direction, especially if we head in this direction. So Finding your joy in that self-study and intensity, just like we do in Lit Yoga, right? We find joy in the intention. It's the exact same thing in this space. And I'm really glad you see that and that you bring that up. Yes. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. I know this is going to really resonate with so many people. And I hope they take um, these practical tips that you gave and apply them because we are powerful and we can be even more powerful together. So thank you so much, Meredith. Well, thank you for having me and for elevating this conversation on your platform. It's so important and it means a lot that you use your reach to highlight that. So thank you. And if anyone wants to ask you questions or make comments or reach out to you, how can they find you? I am on Instagram. My handle is at mclemyoga. So you can feel free to slide into my DMs there. Awesome. Awesome. We'll have that in the show notes so people can reach out to you. Thank you. I love you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And for all of you listening, as always, I'm pulling for you. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 